Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Thank you for joining us on this weekly program coming to you from the Coming Home Network International on EWTN Radio. And I particularly want to thank you for your support of EWTN Radio uh, and encourage you to be supporting your local uh, broadcaster of EWTN programming. It's an exciting week to come to you. A lot of things happened this last weekend. Divine Mercy Sunday. It was the end of of the Easter week. Of course, we had the beatification of Pope John Paul II. It's really exciting, especially for those of us that uh, uh, he was the the Pope during our entrance into the church for so many of us, and and it was his uh, proclamation of the gospel, his own deep commitment to Jesus Christ that opened up the hearts of so many of us to the truth of the Catholic faith. Uh, of course, we have the news of Osama bin Laden and uh, and his demise, and so it's kind of a salt and pepper. We, we on the one hand, we are are very grateful that this head terrorist is is end, ended. On the other hand, there's a sense in which we always feel awkward rejoicing anyone's death. And so we pray for everyone's soul. And as the, the Vatican said recently, well, he will stand before God, as we all will. So, But it's, it's a good week, lots of things happening. And as we approach this program, our guest today is here to talk about his own journey of faith appreciating even some of the things I've just mentioned, because uh, our guest, uh, Mike Carlton, was a lifelong Presbyterian who did not celebrate divine mercy. The words never crossed his his lips as they had never crossed my lips when I was a Presbyterian. Uh, His full story will appear soon on the Journey Home program, but I wanted him to join us on Deep in Scripture in essence, almost as a Beyond the Journey Home program to talk more in depth about some of the scriptures that uh, opened his heart and mind to the beauty of the Catholic Church. Now, Mike is a former Scottish Presbyterian, a a long line of Scottish Presbyterians. Uh, His wife, Lori, was a cradle Catholic. Mike vowed that he would never become a Catholic, however, when he dated his wife and then married her and remained out of the church for many years after their marriage. Yet the Holy Spirit uh, worked on his heart, and he encountered former Presbyterians who had converted to the Catholic Church. He encountered various Catholic materials and then had his own Damascus Road moment in which he stumbled upon Mother Angelica's Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Alabama. That's a great part of the story you'll want to hear on the journey home. Mike joined the Catholic Church in 2002, and he and his wife now live in Georgia with their six children. And a couple other things just to add. He started an apologetics ministry called Why Catholic? You'll probably talk about that in a moment. He also, with his wife, Lori, started a marriage ministry called MAC, M-A-C, which stands for Marriages Are Covenants. And he writes uh, on the Integrated Catholic Life uh, email page. E-Magazine. E-Magazine, excuse me. So we'll again talk more about this uh, as Mike joins us in a moment. But he had a long list of verses that he could include 
uh, as the verses he never saw or recognized or appreciated. Uh, he, in fact, made the comment it could be almost the whole New Testament, and I agree with that. As you, as you become to discover the fullness behind the New Testament documents that rests in the teacher of the church, you begin recognizing ways in which, if you were a former Protestant, you begin recognizing the way that you read Scripture through Protestant lenses. And then, as you're open to the fullness of the faith, you begin reading and recognizing, excuse me, the way that you misread Scripture to make it fit into whatever tradition you were coming from. And so he chose a number of verses which, for some of you listeners, they may appear blankly obvious, but as he mentions a few of these, he didn't he didn't see or didn't look at. And uh, we've got a list of these we'll look at during our program today. John 20, verses 22 through 23, Philippians 4.13, which is one that was always important to him, but he began to maybe see in a different light. 1 Peter 3.15, we'll look at that but I'll begin by reading Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And these are the familiar passages in which we have our Lord calling Simon Peter, a rock, but they have a very deep meaning uh, for those of us that have discovered the beauty of the church. So let me read, beginning with verse 13 through verse 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodite's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. 
Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Mike Carlton. And uh, Mike's great to have you in the program. Thanks, Marcus. And, Glad to be uh, here. Uh, I, your notes here reminded me that you were a former Scottish Presbyterian. And, and whenever I think of Scottish Presbyterians, I, I, to me, that just is the definition of staunch Presbyterianism. Yeah, a little uh, bullheaded. <laughs> in a kind way. God bless them. I mean, deeply committed. Uh, yeah. Uh, deeply committed. And um, uh, and, and in some sense, hard to break free from mm-hmm. when you've had that all your life, mm-hmm. your, your upbringing, your formation, and all of that. And as I mentioned to the audience earlier, you're, you're able to tell most of your story on the Journey Home program, which will appear in a couple weeks. Uh, it's, it's impossible to tell the whole mm-hmm. journey, how God touches your life, all the different, different things, uh, the way he opens his hearts and minds of the beauty of the Catholic Church. But the, uh, I like the ability to have you also join me on Deep in Scripture because you're able to go into some Scripture mm-hmm. that you aren't able to do on the Journey Home program. And we chose a number of Scriptures here, um, uh, Mike and the Matthew 6, we want to begin there? I mean, that's the 16th passage? Sure. Uh, maybe I should ask you in general these passages, just talk in general, why these passages? There's so many. In fact, you've got a card in the back of your Bible with yeah. the, like all the apologetic arguments for the church. Yeah. Why these? Well, Matthew 16 uh, struck me as a, uh, a searcher into Catholicism, uh, one that was trying to debate out of Catholicism. Um, when Jesus made that statement to Peter, uh, changing his name, and uh, the proclamation made when Peter first identified Jesus as the Christ, and then Jesus turned around and gave him the keys of the kingdom. There's a lot there when, if you're of a Protestant mentality and you your church dates back to Martin Luther, and he's giving Peter the keys of the kingdom, and he refers to the church as being his church on this rock, the rock of Peter, it's hard to reconcile that if you're not of a Catholic persuasion. Which rock is he talking about? Which church is he personal, personalizing? And who and what role does Peter play? If you don't take believe in apostolic succession, Peter being the first pope, it's hard to overcome this scripture. It was for me. It was hard yeah. to overcome this. Yeah, and I, as a Scottish Presbyterian, in many ways, your particular background doesn't trace so much back to Calvin as it does to... To John Knox. That's right, John Knox, exactly. And he wasn't the most congenial, friendly dude, Mm-mm. if I remember from history. It cracks mm-hmm. me up when we look back. When, when I was a Presbyterian, I always look back to John Calvin more than I look back to John Knox. But both of them, mm-hmm. uh, if they were living in my neighborhood, I don't know if I'd invite them over for a cookout very often because they were not friendly folk. They were angry and always fighting the battles. And uh, it's amazing we look back to think how much they became the model for a, a form of, of Presbyterian tradition that seemed to be uh, just very stark. And again, I don't know if that was your particular background, Michael, but again, do you, so you don't remember when you were a Presbyterian what you did with this passage or how you would have explained it. I don't remember it at all. I don't remember focusing on this passage at all and all the Bible studies. And I wasn't a Scripture scholar uh, at the first degree. I just was uh, 
you know, parishioner that uh, knew some scripture passages, and uh, this was one that was not emphasized. When I attended Presbyterian Bible study as an adult um, and somewhat of an anti-Catholic, I even took this passage to my pastor, who is two years in seminary, Presbyterian minister, and he didn't have a good answer. He didn't have an explanation to overcome this identification by Christ himself as a personalized church built on the back of Peter as the rock of the church. And that is something that um, when he didn't have much of an answer, uh, then I didn't have much of an answer. <laughs> this one became a, a passage I've, I've studied for years since then. A lot of symbolism in this passage. Yeah, and, and what often happens is, uh, and I'm speaking from my own experience as a Presbyterian pastor, is that when you encounter difficult scriptures that don't easily align with your particular tradition, you handle them in a number of ways. Either you just read past them quickly and focus on on the, the bread on either side of the meat, or you avoid them completely by putting it up on a shelf, or another option is to uh, repeat the explanation that somebody else gave that makes sense out of it, mm -hmm. and you just pass it along without actually examining it for yourself. Mm -hmm. It's just something you heard that somebody explained. For example, the the Petra Petros mm -hmm. is you know, and we've talked about that on the pro on the program before. But one of the things that fascinates me is you just said a moment ago the symbolisms in this that you were discovering. Mm -hmm. Is that what you'd like to talk about? Yeah, the symbolic nature of uh, of the identification of the keys of the kingdom, okay. what that means, binding and loosening the power to hear and forgive sins on earth. I mean, ultimately, Christ will judge our sins in the end. He's not suggesting that you're going to have a priest stand in the way of Christ himself, the ultimate judge. However, there is a power to bind and loose on earth to reconcile your relationships along the path. And he bestowed that upon Peter, and he prayed for the disciples. And the identification of the church uh, being built on a rock, and the Holy Spirit would guide the church so the gates of hell would never overcome the church. Yet to me, again, as a... As a uh, somewhat of a Calvinist, but one that followed Presbyterian theology and John Knox, which church was he referring to? And that was 1,500 years before my church started. Mm -hmm. That was hard to overcome. And the biggest thing for me is you can hang your hat on John 3.16 or find your own favorite scripture passage to hold your hat on, but I'm not worthy enough to build a church around a scripture passage that fits my need. I had to go back to what the early church fathers that followed Peter and those that followed the folks that followed Peter, the first couple hundred years, what were they saying about this scripture? How did they reconcile this particular scripture passage? And there is no doubt that they took this scripture passage as meaning apostolic succession, Peter being the first pope, the rock of, uh, of the church built on Peter as the primary, and the uh, primacy of Peter was spoken of in the early church. That was hard to overcome. I know that when I dealt with this passage as a pastor, um, I emphasize that it was Peter's faith mm -hmm. upon which the church was built. And I used the the Greek Petra Petros argument, which, uh, again, I don't know if we want to spend time on that in today's program, uh, but we have dealt with that here on uh, before, and you can see this in any number of Catholic apologetics books, all to get the, the attention away from the person mm -hmm. of Simon. 
or even emphasizing that Jesus said that it wasn't you that knew this, it was your Heavenly Father that gave it to it. So, right, not by flesh and blood. Yeah, all trying yeah. To, to kind of downplay the place of, of, of Simon Peter in this. But the truth is, as you said, that for the 1,500 years of the church, writers like St. Augustine weren't hesitant to emphasize that it was Simon Peter's faith. Augustine emphasized that, but he never denied that it was also connected with the person of Peter. And there's an essence, I don't know if you've thought about this, Mike, but often there's a sense in which Protestantism is a little bit Gnostic, separating the physical from the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And everything is emphasized more on faith and the spiritual Mm -hmm. and the body, and that gets downplayed. And you see that in the way that we Protestants used to deal with this passage, emphasizing the faith, but downplaying the person. But in reality, they're one and the same. When you as a convert to the church, it isn't just your faith that makes the difference, Mike. It's got to be all that you are. What you do with your life and your words and your hands and your eyes and your ears and your life, that's faith. That's what's assumed here. I, and that's, that's something that's been wrestled with from the earliest of times. You know, who is Jesus? And is he the divine incarnate son of God? Or did he become God in the afterlife at resurrection? And that, again, in deference to the early church fathers, and even the teaching of the incarnation itself, the teaching of the Trinity and the Trinitarian understanding of God comes from the church. If you look back in scripture to justify your argument as the sole means of authority to draw your argument from, these first couple hundred years, there weren't Bibles passed around. And uh, that, to me, also was hard to overcome as a Protestant, that the scriptures themselves don't authenticate themselves, and they weren't available. And, uh, in fact, they weren't even available to the printing press was, was uh, brought into the world in 1429, somewhere in the 15th century. Mm-hmm. So even when you had a Bible canonized by the church in the 4th century, this Bible wasn't in every household until way, way later in time. So there has to be an authority outside just the Bible to reconcile some of these scripture passages. I remember the last time that I preached on this passage as a Presbyterian pastor. I don't, and I do remember this, because it sticks out of my mind, I still have the notes, that I don't think I intended it to be this way. But Michael, I emphasize verses 14, 15, 16, and 17 from the standpoint of, all right, who do you say Jesus is? And and took it to a uh, an emphasis on surrender to Christ about who do you believe in. That's what this passage to me was all about. And the subtleness that I think you see also in the the continual widespread of individualistic Protestantism is that it doesn't really come down to who he really was, but who you think he was. That's right. Matter of opinion. Like it's up for grabs. That proclamation by Peter was essentially the start of the identification with the disciples as Christ being the Messiah. It's not by accident that Peter was the, uh, the one who proclaimed Christ being the Messiah and had his name changed on the spot. These are all symbolism and typology from the earliest church, earliest times, that we should uh, 
to me, the Catholic Church just simply preserves what's been taught from the earliest of times and is not making things up along the way. And it's not up to the individual to change doctrine. Yeah, in fact, we see in the writings of St. Augustine as well as uh, all the way up through uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman, this idea that the deposit of faith was delivered, but that doesn't mean that as it encountered problems in the world over the centuries that it didn't take this truth and see how it addressed the needs of the world. There was no, um, we can think about moral teaching today that wasn't as clearly expressed in the fifth century, for example, because the issues that we encounter today in the moral, medical, ethical world, they never conceived of in the fifth century. But what the church is teaching today on issues of medical ethics is directly in line in a continuity and development of that which they received from the very beginning on the issues of murder and the person. All those things, it's a continuation of this common deposit of faith. It's a th the three-legged stool, you know, the, the scriptures, the catechism, and the... Uh magisterium, the teaching office of the church, uh, provides balance for some of these modern arguments that uh, you can't find embryonic stem cell research found in the pages of Scripture. They didn't deal with this back then. But you're right, they dealt with the concept of life and conception and uh, the protection of, as Pope John Paul II talks about, the culture of life. These modern concepts, we lean on the church for some of the guidance. And as a Protestant, I find a lot of uh, Protestant ministers will lean on some of the Catholic teaching without fully divulging where these teachings came from, like Pope John Paul II and all of his writings about life and the culture of death, culture of life, the theology of the body. But back to this scripture, to me, Matthew's gospel and his, his writing about the chair of Peter, the chair of Peter is still existing today. This is not a, a concept we need to wrestle with, you know, what's Peter's role in my faith today in 2011? The chair of Peter is still in Rome. The office still exists. The Holy Office says the Vicar of Christ is still there. Pope Benedict is uh, in the chair. So it's not a the man we're pointing to. It's the, it's the teaching, the theology, and the Holy Spirit that was initiated at that time when Peter declared Christ as the Messiah. It's interesting to apply this uh, model here, Mike, to the question you just brought up. Because let's say the question is, who do you say that the Holy Father is? Who do you say that the Pope is? And you're going to have all the different opinions out there, and we might think it's up to every individual. But what the significance of what happened here is we see Peter being fully open to the witness of the Father. It wasn't that all of a sudden Peter was smart. Right. And that isn't what Jesus was affirming, is of his total openness to the truth. And so, therefore, Jesus said, you're the one. That's what it's... So, when we, what about the Pope? Is it up to our individual opinions? Or are we being open to the guidance of God through the church that he established in his Son and the apostles guided by the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really the bottom line, the model that's here. Any other key themes you want to bring out in this passage before we take our first break? Here? I think the keys of the kingdom is important to emphasize you know, he gave the keys of the kingdom symbolic but meaningful. You know, what does a key symbolize and what does that mean? Keys to which kingdom? The kingdom on earth, the kingdom in heaven, 
What does it mean to be the possessor of the key among the 12? When they all were getting the answer wrong and Peter got it right, it's not by accident that he used that language. And so to me, once again, if the Supreme Court is wrestling with a, an argument that's a matter of law, they go back to precedent. They go back to what preceded them. Okay. They don't just come up with a new opinion, what was been, what's been said in the past. So to me, that's the teaching of the church. It goes back to the earliest church fathers treated this as the first apostolic office of the papacy. And that's how we need to treat it today. In my opinion, it's a matter of preservation, not making up new things along the way. And when you see that as a background of Acts 15 for the First Council, it's based on this. That's right. So let's take a break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Mike Carlton. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I am joined, again, as I said, Mike Carlton. And uh, Mike, I do want to mention that uh, you had started an apologetic ministry called Why Catholic? Maybe explain a little bit more what that is. When I first came to the church, I I wanted to share uh, the faith, and I wanted to share the faith with anybody who would listen, uh, Catholic, Protestant, uh, seeker, it could be anybody. So I wanted to... uh, bring some of this to the church in a, a formal way, and I guess we call that apologetic, so a word that I hadn't used before. But the why Catholic name, very simply put, is, you know, what does the church teach and why? What do we believe and why do we believe it? And it is a apologetics class that uh, bases the teaching of the church 
as a comparative with other religions mm -hmm. and all other Christian denominations as well. All right, sounds great. Um, the second text that you wanted us to look at is another familiar passage, but um, you know, I used to use this passage back when I was a Protestant minister. And so that's why you get to make sure you get it in the whole context of the faith. Let me read it. It's First Peter 3, 15 and 16. And he says, uh, in your in your hearts, let's see if I get it. In your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence, and keep your conscience clear, so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, Mike, did you uh, were you aware of this passage back when you were a Presbyterian? No, no not at all. This is one that we didn't uh, stress or, or, or talk about, and I think the meaning would differ as well. Uh, I maintained a lot of contacts at the uh, Presbyterian Church after I had converted, had a number of uh, healthy discussions with my uh, fellow Christians after converting, was even accused of going, being, being a person who's now on his way to hell when I converted, which I found interesting. <laughs> but um, to me, I wanted to lean on this scripture passage to try to explain the faith in a way out of reverence and humility to other faith traditions, but yet not be afraid to explain the reasons for your hope, the reasons for your belief. And as it says, do it with gentleness and reverence, uh, but with a clean conscience. That um, it to me is the, the part that is still challenging to not be angry and offended when you're being accused of something, but yet just uh, simply out of reverence for their background explain with firm conviction and not to waver on Catholic teaching. Yeah, it, it really is a strong encouragement for everyone to know their faith. There is no excuse to merely accept the faith passed on to you from your parents, grandparents. You need to know it. It doesn't mean you need to necessarily start from scratch and challenge it reinvent it some especially in the 1960s and 70s felt that's what it meant to gain you know intellectual freedom was to start from scratch and start over no but it means you need to know why you believe and as i said i used this passage when i was a, a protestant uh, i used it in my preaching to encourage my congregation to know their faith in fact, one of the, my favorite Protestant writers was a writer by the name of Paul Little, who wrote a book called you know, "Know What You Believe and Know Why You Believe," and I agreed one hundred percent. But the difference from your own expect, experience, Mike, is how do you know what's true? I mean, just because you have your faith, you got where do you get it from? How do you know? that it is true and not something that was really passed on to you unexamined by those that passed it on to you. And then you just picked it up and passed it on to the next person. Like, how do you know it's true? And that's something that uh, I had to wrestle with because these aren't my teachings. This isn't my theology. I'm not sharing in class what I've learned because I'm just a guy. This is something that's been taught by the church over, over the history. So I, I feel like in some ways with this passage, I'm just sharing what's already been taught and preserved over the ages 
So this is not new revelation. This is something that I think the fullness of faith was already deposited, and the teaching from Peter's uh, passage here is something that you need to be aware of, that don't be afraid, don't back down, be very firm in your convictions in terms of the grounding of where your position comes from. However, um, do have reverence for other the, for the, your accusers, because there will be many. And I've had, I've had many accuse me of running wayward here as, uh, as if I've kind of gone off the deep end here in Catholicism. <laughs> and I feel like I really haven't. I just simply returned to the early, your, your program is called Journey Home. I feel like I've gone home back to the original deposit of faith that we've all come from, the trunk of the tree. And I was on a branch. Yeah, the, the biggest emphasis that grew out of the Reformation was this sola fide, faith alone, that that's really all that matters eternally. And I in no way want to uh, caricature or belittle that position because I've known so many deeply sincere Protestant brothers and sisters that I know their hearts are, are really in line with their love for Jesus Christ. But this passage to me, emphasizes that faith is more than merely a mental assent to certain issues of truth. It seems to me, Mike, that it emphasizes three aspects of faith. And I'd like you to talk about those. It involves head, heart, and hands. Head, be prepared. Heart, it's the way you do it, right? Gentleness, Mm -hmm. reverence humility, the long list of things that Paul says in Ephesians 4 and elsewhere. And the, and the third is, with your hands, a clear conscience, how we live our life. And and I'm wondering, in your own spiritual journey, have you had to come and deal with all three sides of that as an important part of who you are as a, a child of God? Absolutely. You'll be called a, a hypocrite very quickly if you say something and not back it up with your actions. Having actions match with words <clears throat> and, and borrowing from St. Francis, you know, preach the gospel every day, only if necessary, use words. So your actions do tie to your words in every sense of the word, in every sense of the scripture. But at the same time, you also need to um, have unity and belief that dates back to the early church fathers. And that is something that um, there are f- many will fall, and it's a journey for everybody. And uh, I've had people that have known I've converted to the Catholic Church, uh, come to me since the scandal and point to certain bishops or somebody who's fallen as an example of uh, a fallen church. And that's where you have to have uh, a defense of your position, but out of, out of love, out of reverence. And the final thing that I, I lean on with this particular scripture passage is hope. Always give reason for your hope. Well, you have to be hopeful. What are we hoping for? And what I'm hoping for is unity in Christianity as uh, St. John's Gospel. In John uh, 10, 16, there shall be one fold and one shepherd. You know, the unity of the church as Christ prayed for and, and promised. I hope in the end that we will be unified under, under Christ and not in these uh, serial debates, thousands of different denominations competing for the same parishioner. Very, the mission fields are very confusing now in Christianity. Hmm. If you're listening to this for the first time and you're in Africa and you're hearing Christ for the first time, you have two missionaries both speaking a very different theology, even yeah. on identifying who Christ was and how we celebrate and how you're saved. 
These are big, big tenets of the faith, salvific issues. These aren't just issues of how we worship in our church. Yeah, what's happened is that how do we define unity within Christianity? The the problem is um, that the common denominator amongst Christians has been reduced to almost nothing. What is it that unites Christians? Maybe it's the name Christian, but who Jesus is, not all Christians agree. And so that's why it gets us back to the issue of authority, the issue of church, which was the foundation upon which the first passage you you talked about in Matthew 16. Um, real quickly, before we take our next break, I want to bring in the Philippians 4.13 passage. It's a nice little short one, though it's a powerful one. We could spend a whole hour talking about the, the implications of this. But you said this was an important passage to you, Mike. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. It, it, this is one that I, I lean on because it's a it's a very unifying passage that I, I held as a, a Protestant. My uh, father actually wrote this in my first Bible he gave me in ninth grade for confirmation, <laughs> Philippians 4.13. I carried that through playing college football, leaned on this verse whenever there's adversity in my life, and then leaned on it more recently as a Catholic when you face pitfalls in life. This is the one that we can all agree on. It's almost a John 3.16 for me. It's a Philippians 4.13 is one that that only with Christ we can overcome any adversity, be it your marriage, your personal faith journey, the nature of sin, any, any obstacle in your life, any adversity you face, this is the one you can lean on, and this is a uniform across all Christianity. Yeah, and I, uh, I don't want to throw a wrench into that, but I agree with you completely. But even a verse like this reminds me of the need to understand our faith within the correct context. Because, for example, I can do all things. Well, is there a limit to what we can or cannot do in certain areas of life? I mean, you're a medical background, Mm -hmm. Mike, and we do know there are constraints to what we can or cannot do. Uh, There are commitments we've made, vows of marriage, that have certain stipulations on them. Well, if we throw out the authority and set up for ourselves our self and authority, we can put in there whatever we want, know that God will strengthen us to do it. Mm-hmm. That's not what he's saying here, Mm-mm. but it could be twisted to say that until, unless we have an authoritative constraint on our conscience, forming our conscience correctly to make sure that what we're praying for, for God's strength to help us, is right. Uh, you know, uh, Jesus said elsewhere that anything we ask in his name, he'll do. But in his name means according to his will. That's right. It's uh, not my will be done, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think about this before the Eucharist. Not worthy to receive you, only say the word and shall be healed. <laughs> it's, a, it's a deference to Christ. And I think oftentimes we try to do too much on our own without Christ, only pull him in when it's convenient. Yeah, that, that was the danger of the old what would Jesus do bracelets. That's right. Uh, you could read into it anything you wanted, sadly, uh, mm-hmm. if you weren't well versed in, in the fullness of the faith. Let's take another break, Mike. We'll come back and we'll have a little bit of time to left to look at that last passage you mentioned, John 20. 
You're listening to Deep in Scripture, brought to you by the Coming Home Network International, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Mike Carlton. And uh, I want to remind you, or if maybe for the first time, tell you about an event coming up in a couple months that you won't want to miss. I want you to join me at EWTN's Family Celebration in Birmingham, Alabama, July 23rd and 24th. This year's theme, 30 Years of Faithful Service. You'll hear inspirational talks by EWTN hosts, and uh, uh, including Father Mitch Paqua, Raymond Arroyo, Father Bennett Grishel, and more. You'll attend Mass and spend time in adoration. Children can learn and have fun at EWTN's Faith Factory featuring Pete the Penguin. He can be part of a live show audience at EWTN's television and radio networks. And it's all free. Make your summer plans now. Log on to EWTN.com or call 205-271-2989 for more information. And that's the EWTN's family celebration in July. I want to make sure you can attend that if you can. It's always a lot of fun. And I've been privileged to join at most of those over the last couple years. All right, Mike, we've got about 10 minutes or so that we can focus on John 20, verse 22 through 23. Uh, This is a great passage. And uh, again, I think it's one of those that I jumped over when I was a Presbyterian pastor because I, I, I assumed that when I was a Presbyterian pastor, that therefore he would somehow be speaking about me. But I didn't have the gumption to claim what he was claiming. Let me read the passage. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, was this a passage that you just didn't notice back in your Presbyterian days? Actually, no. I, I We confessed as a group on Sunday service, and that was it. And you were called to confess privately. Um, the first time I felt really reconciled was my actually my first confession, first reconciliation as a sacrament. Uh, almost teared up at the time. It was really a moving experience because I'd never had that personal interaction sitting before another uh, another person of Christ, another person who, who would listen to me. And I think verbalizing your sins is a very powerful human emotion that uh, Christ had in mind. But as a Protestant, I didn't realize the nature of the priesthood and reconciliation, what Christ was actually instituting here. He wasn't just saying, if you stumble, go ahead and pick yourself up on your own. He was saying, I'm going to give the power of my Holy Spirit to the priesthood to forgive sins on earth, 
along the way. And to me, the gospel, meaning good news, that's the gospel, reconciliation. And this is the institution of confession Christ put in, and these are some of the scripture passages that I overlooked as a Protestant. I suppose if I look back on my understanding of these and some of the surrounding passages, for example, in John 14, 15, and 16, chapters 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus is, it's pretty much the, um, it's assumed that those were passages that he spoke in the upper room uh, on, the, on the, the last supper, evening of the last supper, that I presumed as a Protestant that he was speaking in general to all believers. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. And not noticing that the context in which he's speaking, he's speaking directly to his apostles. So the question is, to what extent is what he's saying normative for everybody? And if you take four, chapter 14, 15, 16, normative to everybody, you'll receive the Holy Spirit, and on and on, it, it leads to problems. And particularly in this case, if we're just speaking that this is Jesus speaking in general to everyone that believes in him, yes, we do believe that through baptism you receive the Holy Spirit, every single person. But does that therefore mean that everyone equally has this ability or authority to forgive sins? And all you can end up with, if you go that direction, is downplaying the meaning of verse 23. You reduce it to the its least meaning by saying, as Jesus says elsewhere, Mike, if I don't forgive you your sins, then mine aren't forgiven. I'm only forgiven the level of which I forgive you. And so Jesus is saying that if I forgive your sins, they're forgiven. If they're not forgiven, if I don't forgive you, then they're not forgiven. But it's only in my context. You see what I'm saying? They're not right. in some ultimate, powerful, meaningful, deep way. It's eliminating it down to just the, our relationship, which takes all the meaning from the passage. It does. It does. Yeah, he speaks to the priesthood. If you go back to John 17, when he talks about praying that they all be one and they're brought in perfection as one, uh, John 10, one shepherd, one, one shepherd in Christ's sheep. He, he's praying for unity, but he's not praying for chaos. <laughs> and when Martin Luther put in the priesthood of all believers and flattened out the hierarchy, it led to chaos with thousands and thousands of varieties of how to reconcile your faith. And without the institution of the priesthood guiding us, standing in for Christ. And as Paul talked to Timothy about reconcile with your brother who you've wronged, but if your brother's not available, go to the church, mm-hmm. go to the bishop. You know, why would he say that? Why wouldn't Paul just say, just turn, get on your knees, and open up in prayer? Um, these, are, these are in Protestant Bibles. As a Protestant, I used to love Paul. I mean, yeah. Paul's <laughs> a hero. And there's so many scripture passages that speak to Paul is Paul's perspective on reconciliation, and in this case, John's perspective in St. John's Gospel about how to reconcile your faith in the most formal way. And I can tell you from an experience as a Protestant coming into the Catholic Church, I really, really felt heard in that moment, and I felt the eyes of Christ on me from Father Pat, who was my confessor the first time. And I looked up at him, and he looked at me with the eyes of Christ, the eyes of, 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 of empathy, and of understanding, and when I heard the absolution, I felt free for the first time. I felt really cleansed spiritually. 
of my sin. And I had never experienced that before. I always hid among my own prayers until I had to cough them up to somebody else in person. Yeah, the, the mystery of the sacraments is really the key to this passage in a sense that, that our danger is that we think that our senses is the foundation for what's true. And if we believe that, if you're going to make your senses, your hearing, your seeing, your taste, your touch, the foundation for what's true, you're going to end up with scientific materialism. And basically, you'll end up rejecting the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the creation of the world ex nihilo, because you can't prove any of that through senses, as you can't the Eucharist. You can't baptism. I mean, Mike, you were baptized. You became a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Through baptism, you received the Holy Spirit. Through baptism, you became a member of the body of Christ. Did you feel any of that? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit of gravy, you felt better, but that's the change of the inner man. Well, we're talking in verse 23 about an amazingly powerful reality that our senses cannot understand, and that is that the creator of the universe would give to mere men the authority to forgive sins. And, and that is a mystery that's beyond our really understanding because we're sinners, as are the men that have been given this power. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, uh, it, it's something I had read early on about the Council of Chalcedon in 451. St. Ambrose taught that the holy water still flows through a rusty pipe. There was a controversy at the time about if my priest falls away and had baptized me, is my baptism no longer valid? And the church declared, yes, it is valid. It's a sacrament from God. It's working through imperfect instruments, just like reconciliation. Just like reconciliation. In, in, in that sense, uh, when you, Mike, came into the church and probably were still asking the question, why do I got to confess my sins to a man? We're still thinking about it through our sensual understanding of life. But the reality is when you confess your sins to this priest, you're not merely confessing them to a man. You're, you're confessing them to an altar Christus, a man who's received the sacrament of ordination. And it's this mystery between his forgiving and as he forgives, you're being forgiven by God. That's what it says. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And I couldn't reconcile that passage from a Protestant perspective, nor could I go to James 5, 13 through 15, about prayer to the presbyters and the priests to forgive sin. There's so many other passages in the, in the gospel and also in the New Testament that speak to confession and reconciliation. I wanted to make sure before we, because this is great stuff, but we're going to run out of time here. Mike, that you tell us about your writing on the, uh, on the e-magazine. Yeah, there's a magazine that was uh, started by uh, the deacon in, deacon in our church, uh, St. Peter Chanel in Roswell, Georgia, Deacon Mike Bickerstaff, and uh, Randy Hain, called The Integrated Catholic Life. It's an e-magazine that they started. I'm just a writer into the magazine. I've written a few articles. But it's a magazine that speaks to apologetics, also faith, life of the church. It's Integrated Catholic Life, which symbolizes and, and emphasizes the fact that we don't want to leave our Catholicism at home when you're at work or at work when you're at home, you want to integrate your life 
and have that unity uh, throughout your life. So it's a, a very interesting experience to write into a, a magazine like this. You can just go to Google Integrated Catholic Life and it'll pull up the magazine. It's updated weekly. It's called Google. It's you, a, Integrated Catholic Life, ICL. Okay, on Google. Yeah. Or, oh, you just Google it. Absolutely. Right. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. All right, excellent. Well, I'm glad you're doing that, and thank you for joining us today and both uh, also your witness on the Journey Home program. Thank you, Michael. Uh, maybe we'll have you back someday. Thank you, Marcus. All right. God bless. A few more. There's probably a few more verses you'd like to talk about. Sure, a couple more. <laughs> all right, thanks, Mike. And all of you, thanks for joining us on the program. I hope this is an encouragement to you to understand the beauty of our church, the authority behind the church that help us make sure that when we know our faith, preparing our, our, to tell others for the hope that is in us, that the hope that we have is on a rock-solid foundation of Peter with the keys, and that we have taken advantage of this great gift of reconciliation that, as we read in Scripture, God gave to his priests. So God bless you. See you again next week.